morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever the case may be. Around this rotating sphere, welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. That magical time between dusk and dawn when uh, just about anything can happen. And we try to, if not be there, at least uh, cover it and talk about it. Well, tonight we're going to be doing another edition of our continuing series in extraterrestrial communications. And there's a couple of very interesting new wrinkles which have occurred in the last week, which we're going to encompass. And we're going to spend some time tonight just kind of talking among ourselves about the meaning of what we're doing, because uh, it is far exceeded uh, I guess almost anybody's expectations, well, maybe except mine. <laughs> but then I have very big expectations, and sometimes the universe is kind to you, and it uh, it answers. In this case, um, someone has answered the phone. Remember that old movie with the uh, E.T. phone home? Well, we tried calling E.T., and E.T., whoever E.T. is, and we will discuss the various options for all the new listeners who have come to the other side of midnight. I did uh, coast to coast uh, for the first time in seven years, a little over a week ago. And all kinds of interesting things have happened since, not the least of which is that we have a significant bump in our listening audience. Welcome to you, one and all. Um, You're going to hear us tonight drill down on this really remarkable experiment where we are talking to someone we're talking in code in the fundamentals frequencies and measurements of uh, basically the foundation of hyperdimensional physics we're broadcasting on two frequencies two uh, very high frequency um, wavelengths or frequencies uh, in the vhf band uh, covering both 144.1 megahertz, that's mega cycles, a million cycles per second, and 432 megahertz, or 432 million cycles per second. And those numbers are not arbitrary, as you will hear tonight as we go through uh, uh, the evening and then the morning. Um, And we have been joined tonight by uh, an additional member of the very enterprising, pun intended, Enterprise Mission uh, away team who was doing, actually receiving and recording uh, these signals from whoever we have uh, opened hailing frequencies to. And we will uh, welcome him to our um, merry band, our panel for this morning uh, very shortly. But for all of you who are new to the show, I want to direct you to how to get to a section of the website and the program we call Radio with Pictures. Uh, what you want to do is you want to go to the other side of midnight.com. That's our URL. Click on that. That will take you to our home page. And then on the home page, you will see near the top a very large banner which says Stonehenge ET transmissions, more continuing responses for March 12th, 9 p.m. to midnight Pacific. Oh, and by the way, tonight's the night that we spring forward. So we Move the clocks at 2 a.m., wherever you are in our listening audience, forward one hour. And I meant to put up a link to that. 
And of course, with all the other stuff going on, I forgot. So that's why I'm remembering now to tell you at 2 a.m. your local time. And for you on the East Coast, you'll be uh, into our third hour. So you're going to want to, during the show, as applies to uh, one of our guests this morning, you're going to want to set your head, your head, your clock ahead by one hour. But don't do it until 2 a.m. Okay, otherwise you'll get really, really confused. Um, and remember the old cliche, spring forward, fall back. So you're going to set your clocks ahead because it's spring. Uh, actually, technically, it's not spring for another couple of weeks, but what's uh, uh, another couple of weeks among friends? Anyway, so tonight. Um, so back to how you find us. Uh, you click on tonight's banner for March 12th uh, on the home page. That will take you to our guest page. And uh, under the guest page, it's, you'll see a big uh, banner which says to listen to the show. And that takes you to a live stream of the show. If, you, uh, if you're already listening, obviously, you don't have to click on that. Below that, it says guest page, and it says fast links to items. And it's got my name and my other guests tonight. Click on my name. That will take you directly to my section down the page of Radio with Pictures. Our first two items are kind of standard since Christmas. They are direct links to the uh, Web Space Telescope blog page. That's link number one. And link number two is the very interestingly laid out Where is Web NASA locator page, which shows you a whole bunch of details. You can kind of prowl around uh, that site and you'll see how far away it is in its six-month-long halo orbit around the uh, L2 position with definitions of what L2 is and all that. So everything you want to know about web can be found uh, through those links. And what you're seeing uh, to the right of the um, caption, which tonight says web will use spectroscopy to study composition of distant galaxies, and that's kind of interesting because they've been going through the instrument commissioning process of the um, uh, instruments that are attached to Webb that are going to be taking the light focused by all 18 um, hexagonal mirrors when they get to where they focus them into one uh, image. And there's the intermediate step, which is the graphic, uh, the GIF on the right, which shows, you know, when they first, you know, kind of took an image through uh, the um, one of the instruments, one of the cameras, they got all those separate telescope images separately, and then they had to focus them, and that's what that gift transition is from their original unfocused um, layout to a more focused condition. And now what they're going to do is to move each of those separate star images when they're all in fine focus and they're going to lay them literally by moving the mirrors left right up and down with little motors they're going to move them so ultimately of this one g-type star which is located uh in the constellation of ursa major uh the great bear actually it's probably within the the big dipper which is the asterism within the constellation of the great bear the circumpolar constellation for most of the northern hemisphere because it never really sets unless you're farther south toward the equator they will take that image and superimpose all those 18 separate telescope mirrors so they form one giant mirror 
which is almost 22 feet in diameter, made of uh, uh, beryllium with a whiff of gold uh, vacuum deposited on top. Why gold? Well, because this is an infrared telescope, and gold reflects infrared energy better than aluminum or silver or some other metal. So, anyway, all that you want to know about Webb and its deployment and the commissioning and all that is available on link number one and where it is and where the instruments are and, you know, some picky little details like their temperatures. Because uh, remember, they're on the shadow side of this huge tennis court-sized multi-layered sun shield. So the temperatures in this artificial night where the telescope is going to hang out for its entire life never seeing sunlight again, unless there's a problem, and there won't be. Uh, the temperatures back there are really now plunging toward absolute zero, where the temperatures on the day side uh, of that sun shield, I saw one temperature which was like uh, almost 130, 140 degrees, because remember, the L2 position is uh, still relatively close to the Earth. It's within a million miles of the Earth's distance to the sun, so the fall-off of temperature uh, with distance from the sun really is not material. So it's very hot on the sun side and incredibly cold, approaching absolute zero on the shadowed side, and that's where infrared telescopes like to live, in the dark when it's cold, so that the infrared from the telescope does not overwhelm the infrared coming from the various targets be it stars or other planets circling other stars or gas clouds or the most distant early forming galaxies right after the Big Bang, which is one of the major targets that Webb is going to be looking for. Item number three. Now, obviously, this program is taking place against the backdrop of this extraordinary catastrophic geopolitical event, which is now the war in Ukraine. And early on, it became a pattern with the Russians that they seem to be bent on occupying Ukraine's working and non-working nuclear reactor sites. Well, since everybody can easily succumb to peer porn, I mean, there's an awful lot of that parading around on the internet in the form of fake news, I thought it would be useful to put up item number three, which is a very informative piece on why electrical blackouts are dangerous to Ukraine's nuclear sites and why the IAEI uh, appeared at the um, uh, senior um, ceasefire conference in Turkey a couple days ago, demanding that the Russians who occupied Chernobyl let the uh, Ukrainian engineers back in so they can reconnect the power because Chernobyl has been cut off not only from the electrical grid and power is required for the pumps, which is required for cooling, and we all know what happens when you don't cool nuclear reactors. It is a bad day for an awful lot of people if things get out of control. So um, I do not know as of tonight whether the Russians have acceded to the IAEA's demand. The IAEA is the international... Uh, uh, Atomic Energy Commission, um, and they're kind of in charge of global monitoring of nuclear reactors and safety, etc. And they normally do that through uplinks uh, to the internet. Well, the Russians, in addition to severing the power, 
when they took over Chernobyl on their way down from Belarus. They also cut the um, feed, the internet feed from Chernobyl to the IAEA, so they cannot monitor any of the you know, hundreds of engineering parameters required to maintain safety of the uh, still functioning uh, uh, reactors. There was one reactor which caught fire and blew up in 1986. That was the one that spread radioactive material across a large section of Ukraine, Russia, and Europe at the time in the form of a radioactive cloud of material which fell out on the ground. Um, but there were three other functioning reactors. I believe those have now been decommissioned. But the Russians also took over far to the southeast a functioning a nuclear reactor which provides about one quarter of Ukraine's total energy supply. In fact, nuclear reactors provide about half of Ukraine's energy. And so it's got four other major reactors in addition to Chernobyl. And the Russians appear to be methodically uh, trying to take over all those sites. And uh, that bodes, uh, I mean, it really is not a good idea for non-specialists. When they took over the other site, which uh, has a unpronounceable name in Ukrainian, um, but it is the largest nuclear reactor site in Europe. And when they took it over, they took it over in part by lobbing tank shells uh, into the structures. And, you know, by the grace of God and whoever looks after fools, uh, none of the reactors was breached. Um, but if they were breached or if there was a... Uh, uh, meltdown because of lack of electricity for cooling, um, the experts say that it would make uh, Chernobyl look like a uh, Sunday school picnic. So I thought that would be important background for you to have as we proceed on, because the reason this is relevant to tonight's discussion is that in terms of responses to our radio signals into the dark, beginning with a muamua and then moving on to uh, transmitting from the center of an ancient sacred observatory in southern Britain known as Stonehenge. And we uh, have our away team member who did that intrepid um, set of expeditions, and we're going to have her kind of recap, you know, what she did and how she did it. And then we're going to talk in detail about some of the responses. One of the two major things which came out of those transmissions in the recorded response in the case of Ukraine, four days ahead of the invasion, and in the, in the case of the bizarre Tonga explosion in the South Pacific, two weeks before that event, is we seem to be getting information out of time. We seem to be getting from our radio reception answers to pivotal geopolitical planetary questions weeks or days ahead of the actual pivotal events occurring. In the case of Tonga, two weeks before, and in the case of Ukraine, four days before. And then uh, David Sarita uh, regaled us last week during our two shows, our Saturday and Sunday shows, with new information um, predicting some other uh, potential nuclear reactor sites that the Russians are closing in on. And again, this is part of a pattern, which is why we're discussing all of this tonight, because it appears to be highly relevant 
whoever's at the other end of this phone, using the term metaphorically, appears to try to be giving us a heads up in terms of major world events which are in fact capable of shaping and changing our world. And that's one of the major reasons why it's important that we continue and deepen and broaden not only the experiments, but also the analysis. And so again, I will ask, uh, which I've been asking out for several weeks, if you have any background in cryptology, in information processing, in writing computer programs, uh, we'd like to be able to automate the search through the large amount of data that we have now accumulated, because at the moment we're kind of going through it by hand and by eye and by ear, and we'll get into what that means in a minute. Um, and it's taking a lot of time and a lot of man hours that could be better spent perhaps looking uh, quicker at some of these out of time anticipatory events so we could notify certain people in positions of authority and responsibility if in fact we're giving heads up for other things that are going to occur. Be that as it may, if you look at item number four and five and six and seven, they form a set. And on January 15th of uh, this year, um, about sunset, about dusk, local time, a, a known underwater volcano a few miles away from the remote and incredibly unfamiliar to most people island of Tonga blew its top. And it began, the eruption began underwater, but quickly, you know, enveloped the surrounding neighborhood for miles and miles around as a surface event and produced a cloud of material that I'm going to talk about shortly, but I want to talk about for a moment about the explosion. If you look at number five, explosions in three dimensions are spherical. We know this from a tremendous amount of high-speed photography, uh, including that of nuclear weapons. I had an old friend of mine, uh, Charlie Wyckoff, who was one of the chief scientists at EG&G, which is a firm, a technical high-tech firm, uh, located in the suburbs of Boston, which got the exclusive contract from the old Atomic Energy Commission back in the 1940s to develop technologies to document all of the U.S. nuclear tests, the above-ground and below-ground nuclear tests. So Charlie developed, among other things, cameras capable of recording uh, at a frame rate exceeding a million frames per second, which literally can freeze an H-bomb flat. It can, it can give you a single image in, in focus without light and dark, with, with complete detail. And he could do that, you know, back in the 1940s, given the uh, incredible engineering genius that he was. Anyway, when you look at those incredibly slowed down versions of thermonuclear tests, primarily in the South Pacific, um, those explosions also are spherical, because they take place in three dimensions. Well, if you look at image number four, image number five, item six and seven, um, and you might as well throw in eight, um, of the Tonga explosion, 
Uh, I've added one to the list that I've been showing now for several weeks because we were given this <clears throat> two-week heads up from the ET radio transmissions that we've recorded of the location of the Tonga event, again, two weeks before the Tonga event erupted. And it erupted with such incredible force, the energy estimates that are based on more conventional explosions have ranged from a low end of about 18 megatons using a uh, nuclear weapons scale to a high end of over 60 megatons. The reason that the numbers are so imprecise is because the nearby uh, technology was blown away. The shock wave was recorded circling the planet three times. Fortunately, we have exquisite satellite imagery. We have satellite stereo imagery from two different uh, weather satellites positioned 20-some thousand miles above the Earth that were able to simultaneously record the surface eruption. And what you see in this series of images, items four, five, six, seven, and eight, is that this explosion, this event, this incredible anomaly uh, located at 20.6 degrees south latitude, which was given to us multiple times in the radio reception signals that David Sarita decoded two weeks before the event, that object, that event, that explosion, if you go look at number eight, this is a new one I've added to the list of images. This is an infrared satellite that was able to measure with stereo the height of the actual cloud, which extended over almost 40 miles above the surface of the Pacific Ocean. Even more intriguing, I've done a kind of an enlarged inset of the infrared scan of the cloud ascending from the ocean surface. And as you can see, in this cloud extending 40 miles above the ocean, the cloud is not spherical, it is cubical, which means whatever it is, whatever energy was released, whatever drove material from the ocean bottom to almost 40 miles above the surface of the planet, the sea level surface, of Earth had a hyperdimensional cubical geometry because a cube in 3D is two interlocked tetrahedra. And in our next program, I'm going to show you some other examples elsewhere in the solar system of this same cubical geometry and then tell you what I think it ultimately means for understanding of ancient events all across the solar system. So whoever gave us this kind of preview two weeks before this cataclysmic event, and thank goodness it took place in the middle of nowhere, otherwise countless thousands of people would have been killed from the shock waves alone, to say nothing of the tsunami. Um, Whoever did this either did it themselves and gave us a two-week window, a preview for some reason, or it was a third party apart from those who did this and the, those of us watching, mainly, mainly us. It was a third party that was aware of this was going to happen 
and gave us a two-week heads-up, unfortunately because of the very slow uh, manual nature of our decoding at the moment, which is why we need more machine technology. Uh, we did not get it in time to forecast and give warning, even if we'd been smart enough to understand what the numbers meant at that time to those citizens of Tonga, which really got creamed uh, by this incredibly close explosion. Fortunately, because there had been previous activity of the underwater volcano, um, a lot of the residents had evacuated. And so there was, I, I think there were two or three people on the island of Tonga itself who died uh, because of, of this event, but not the thousands that uh, occurred, you know, uh, after the um, uh, Indonesian tsunami back in, what, 2004, I believe that tsunami occurred, having nothing to do with uh, the events we've just described. Again, this was now unequivocally based on the geometry of the after effects, a hyperdimensional physics slash technology event. And then some weeks later, we have the inexplicable um, connection to the potential reason for why maybe Putin invaded Ukraine. And for those of you who think that's a huge leap, um, let me take you to item number nine. Uh, this is a link. This was sent to me by uh, uh, Ron Gerbrun uh, earlier this week. Uh, it's a story from Wired magazine. Um, it talks about the fact that, unbeknownst to most of us, since 1995, the Ukrainians have maintained a 24-person station called the Vernadsky Station um, in the Antarctic. Uh, at the tip of that long uh, peninsula of islands that extends out into the uh, uh, sea around Antarctica that kind of is aimed toward Argentina. And uh, there are 12 of the researchers who are stranded there because they literally cannot go home. Um, the fact that Wired thought it was interesting to run a story on the Ukrainians who are uh, uh, stuck there um, raised a question in my mind, well, what was the research which the Ukrainians were involved in, and could it conceivably have any possible connection to Russia invading Ukraine? Now, before you think I'm totally nuts on this, just kind of, you know, follow me, okay? Um, so after Ron had sent me this link in this story, I went looking for the uh, research that the Vernadsky National Antarctic Scientific Center of Ukraine uh, is funding and is pursuing, and that is link number 10. And if you look at the link carefully, you'll see that they are involved in, along with the normal biology and looking at the ionosphere and, you know, in the pristine conditions of the South Pole, they also are involved in radio propagation studies, including ELF, which is extra low frequency radio waves that bounce around in the ionosphere, and VLF, which are very low frequency radio waves, which do the same thing. 
And as part of the antennas you can see sticking up there uh, from the research station, they also are equipped to receive and send VHF signals very high frequency in the mega cycle range covering 144.1 to 432 megahertz. So my question, they're at the South Pole. They are basically in a research station that was bequeathed to them when they became a separate nation in 1991 by the Brits who called it the Faraday station. And we all know who Michael Faraday was and his criticality to the development of physics into, you know, abundant technologies, including down the line through Marconi and Tesla and others, actual radio technology. So they took over that station with that historical legacy. It turns out that this station, uh, Vernadsky, is the station which actually found through the use of an old spectrometer bequeathed to the Ukrainians by the uh, British, the ozone hole several uh, Year years break. ago. And were the first to begin tracking this extraordinary hole in the 1980s, which had been caused by chlorofluorohydrocarbons and which then developed into an international treaty to get manufacturers of uh, spray cans to put other kinds of uh, propellants in the cans. And the ozone hole has been healing itself after the um, uh, chlorine atoms that are part of the propellant gases in those 1980s spray cans was uh, basically prohibited and controlled by international treaty. So this station has a foot already in interesting history, which made its larger implications even more intriguing, because I could not help but wonder, given that everyone, and this is, this is an assumption, I will put this right up front, but given that everyone who is involved in this laborious process of actually getting uh, to the South Pole must be involved in some kind of, uh, um, shall we say, high security research. Well, I'll tell you what, let me take a break here and let me begin or rather finish the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey said on the other side of the break. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. I think 
you're looking with this great reset, you're looking at Mr. Globalone's efforts to move everybody into a cashless society, which, you know, like it or not, that's a one-way mirror, folks. Because at that point, you're not dealing with a currency, you're dealing with a corporate coupon that they can adjust the value of at the push of a button, depending on whether or not you're good little boys and girls. And if you're getting into a system where all of the infrastructure of financial clearing is in the hands of the bankers, that's not a system you want to go into. You look at the West, and more importantly, if you look at what some people call the Anglosphere, the, the Western powers that are English speaking, the United Kingdom, Canada, United States, and so on. I do think it's the case there. They're using a health crisis really to drive a, a political agenda. And the health crisis itself is largely blown way, way out of proportion to what's actually the case. If you look at what Mr. Globalone is up to, they are recreating slavery. And the, the thing that is unique about slavery is they now have the means of perfecting the capital because now they can literally implant your body with the means to track you. It's not going to go away overnight, but there are already uh, I think some hopeful signs of cracks beginning to appear in the edifice. This is Joseph P. Farrell. And for all the news the media doesn't like you to hear, tune in to the other side of the news. everyone to the other side of midnight for this Saturday night, March 12, 2022. The music you're listening to is by a Ukrainian composer, Volodymyr Bayastrykov, written in 1982. It's called, very appropriately for what we're going to talk about tonight, Alice Through the Looking Glass. And I was sent this, again, uh, Ron is the culprit, and I played some of it, and I thought, oh, this is kind of intriguing. And we'll dip into it from time to time during the uh, during the breaks uh, at the top and bottom of the hour. 
because I think it's important that we kind of look at what contemporary Ukrainian culture is reflecting, not the least of which, getting back to the South Pole, is it possible that because part of a major part of their research is focused on radio signals and transmission capability from VHF to ELF in the Earth's ionosphere, is it possible the Ukrainians picked up incredibly interesting and anomalous radio signatures from the Tonga event in the South Pacific on January 15th? Total speculation, I totally admit. Now, the good news is we may be able to find out because it turns out, according to the Wired magazine article, which is item number nine, it turns out that the uh, uh, Ukrainian station has a live Internet link. So I'm going to try to get a um, uh, actual uh, interview with one of the scientists um, there at the Ukrainian uh, research station and kind of try to see what they were up to and what they were looking at at the time of the Tonga event. The other thing which is so interesting, and that gets back to what we've been doing since December 4th, given that they are literally monitoring uh, high and very low frequency radio transmissions, is it possible that in addition to our network of independent researchers who have been listening to and recording the answers to our specifically Oumuamua transmissions beginning back on December 4th, is it possible the Ukrainians picked up those radio signals, looked at them, understood that the chirps were totally abnormal compared to anything else that they had monitored for, you know, years before, began recording them, began doing the same kind of thing that we're doing, which is attempting to decode them, and in fact came up with some of the same answers that we have. Now, again, these two ideas, which go together, are at the moment totally speculative except for the fact that of all the nations now involved with a major war with Russia, it happens to be Ukraine. Uh, and the Ukrainian Antarctic Research Center, which is located in Kyiv, and uh, again, you know, kind of hauling out of the uh, woodwork and dusting off an old saying from George Norrie, there are no such things as coincidences. Well, there are coincidences, but in this case, there's a little more here that I'd like to probe into. Last but not least, remember back, and this is item number 11, remember back in, um, 19, in, in 2017, where suddenly the Russian Baltic fleet announced it was going to be sending the fleet to the Antarctic under the direct order of President Putin. And they did. And there were all kinds of rumors. Now, when I went looking for the subsequent reports and news stories and after effects and all this of sending, you know, the Russian Baltic fleet to, you know, literally more than halfway around the world to the Antarctic, to the bottom of the world, to the South Pole, 
nothing is available except for the original uh, Kremlin announcement from 2017 regarding their mission, where they stopped, who they met with, how they were welcomed, where they wound up, when they got back, nothing. It's all disappeared. Again, these are dots. I have no idea whether they're actually solidly connected, but the one thing that I find very intriguing is we know now from overwhelming evidence, including evidence that uh, I've unearthed myself, that the ancient continent of Antarctica is littered with extraordinarily old, 30,000 years if it's a day, ancient high-tech stuff. Given that the radio communicators at the other end of our transmissions have been pointing us to ancient sacred terrestrial sites in our own relatively recent few thousand year old history, like when we transmitted the, the signals to the moon, what we got back was a direct 56 uh, Aubrey Circle connection to Stonehenge, which is why we focused on the next phase of the experiments uh, dealing with transmissions from acred, uh, ancient sacred sites, which of course is uh, all circumstantial until, and I'm going to try to really try to do it this week, maybe we get hold of someone at the Ukrainian station at the South Pole, because they can't leave and there's not much else they can do. Maybe they will talk to us and we might find out more by a direct interview with um, whoever may have been part of this logic chain for real. And I know that one of our panelists says that every major country has a research base in Antarctica. Yeah, and I bet they're all quietly signees to an NDA, which basically says under pain of God knows what, you will never reveal what we're all really doing down here. Remember, back in the uh, 1960s, the Antarctic was declared off limits to any government or private development, commercial exploitation, digging for uranium or, or you know, drilling for oil or mining for minerals. It became a, a you know, island unto itself. And I've always wondered why, given that every other part of the planet is open to exploration, including the Arctic, what made the Antarctic different? Well, you can start with the diaries of uh, uh, Admiral Byrd and go from there. But there's definitely extraordinarily weird and exotic and incredibly ancient high technology in the Antarctic. Um, I, we could spend and we've spent many, many programs detailing some of that. And the question then is, does anybody get, except for tourists kept carefully at the very edges of the continent, does anybody ever get into the Antarctic who doesn't go through such elaborate hoops of legal and political uh, vetting such that everybody who's there probably knows what's really down there and they just can't, for a whole bunch of reasons, including legal, say anything about it. And so did the Ukrainians make the mistake of telling someone what they'd heard and is that part of the reason why this whole gambit in Eastern Europe is now uh, being laid out in such tragedy before us. I know it's all speculation. 
But as Einstein once said, all good science begins in speculation. So let me get to our, our guest tonight, okay? Um, Maria, Maria Wheatley is our uh, first uh, panelist we're going to bring on. She's a second-generation dowser taught by European master dowsers and her late father and Chinese geomancer. She is a leading authority on geodetic earth energies, ley lines, and ancient stone circles. She's an accomplished author with many books on sacred sites and dowsing, and I'm going to have her plug uh, uh, tonight her latest book, which I believe is almost ready to be published. In 2015, she made a major discovery. In the Neolithic period, there was a royal priesthood of long-skulled, elongated people that made Stonehenge their spiritual capital. Across Europe and the British Isles, this enigmatic long-lost civilization designed elongated-shaped monuments to, in Maria's model, reflect their skull shape. During the early Bronze Age, which came some thousand or so years later, the long-skulled people were murdered by round-skulled people who designed round stone circles and created round barrows for the departed, reflecting, in Maria's model, the shape of their skulls. She tracked down the long, elongated skull of the High Queen of Stonehenge and many others in ancient archives there in Britain to reveal the secret history of Stonehenge, which I think, and she'll correct me momentarily, is the title of her impending book. Maria, welcome back to the other side of midnight, the edge of forever, and God knows what else. Oh, thank you for having me again. So what is the title of the new book that's about to be born? Yes, yeah, should be out in a few months. It's A Secret History of Stonehenge. Ah, so, so that is the title. Okay. Well, yes. I certainly hope I get a copy because <clears throat> I, I can't wait to read all the cool stuff you've been quietly working on. For those who are new to the program, kind of describe how you got into becoming an away team, um, an explorer not, who took this 21st century cutting-edge ET communication into one of the most famous of the ancient stone circles? Yes, well, well, Stonehenge is the most famous stone circle in the world because uh, even though there's lots of named places after it and monuments like it built afterwards, there is nothing like Stonehenge. It, it stands unique in the British Isles and in the world. It's iconic. I got involved in the project really after you discovered the number 56 with David Sarida, which are the 56 Aubrey holes that used to originally hold 56 highly polished blue stones with an altar stone in the middle and the heel stones on the outside. So that's how I got involved in that and Stonehenge became apparent that it should be a place that is intricately connected with this project. Well, I guess primarily because if you're talking to aliens, I hate that term, because we don't know who we're talking to, but in their major no. transmissions, they point you toward an ancient, incredibly important terrestrial monument, which is, it used to be an observatory that was uh, figured out back in the 1950s, and there's a lot of archaeologists who have added to that database. Uh, there's a recent group that I think has now tracked the idea that Stonehenge could have been a solar calendar. So the astronomical linkage of Stonehenge was quite obvious 
But the idea that whoever we're talking to in these ET transmissions says, look at Stonehenge, to me and to a couple of other people like John Womack was like, well, ah, uh, duh, maybe, maybe we should transmit from Stonehenge and see what happened. So then we had to look around and find the appropriate victim, uh, I mean, explorer, <clears throat> and that was you. Hmm. <laughs> yes, uh, yes. I mean, when we look at Stonehenge today, we're looking at different phases. So I'd just like to point out that Stonehenge, how we're all familiar with it, is, is phase four. That's what we're looking at, the final phase of Stonehenge. But Stonehenge originally uh, was surrounded by a very tall, um, between six feet and ten feet, chalk wall. So you wouldn't have been able to see Stonehenge today. We can glance at, glance at it, but it was a very concealed area. And even though it's called a henge, Stonehenge, it isn't a henge at all because a henge means a ditch on the inside and a bank on the outside. And Stonehenge stands unique, again, in the British Isles and in the world because it has the bank on the inside and the ditch on the outside and oh, then another what, bank. That, now, that's interesting. Do we have any idea... <clears throat> or since you're writing a book called Secrets, do you have any idea why the geometry was reversed and what the purpose of the bank was? Yes, I mean, everything was highly polished. We're seeing things after four and a half thousand years, if we use orthodox dating, of erosion. So the stones look very grey and the henge bank is now just the bump in the ground because it got ploughed out and it's covered in grass. So originally it would have been highly polished chalk. We know that through excavations done in 1954 by Professor Richard Atkinson and Professor Stuart Piggott. Uh, the, I propose that the bank was on the outside because in particular phases of the moon, uh, when it's at its most southerly, What's when it's very low on the horizon, for example, and we, we know that the greater trilithon was aligned to the midwinter sunset in its lower window, but also it was aligned to the minor southern moon set. And when the moon is that, that low on the horizon line, I think it could have caused part of the henge bank, which is uh, on, like I said, on the inside and not the outside, to be in part illuminated. So you would have the, the sun, the moonlight rather, being brought down to oh, the henge bank. So, so you'd have like a glowing horizon, so you'd clearly yes. see a, a horizon demarcating the lower from the upper, the earthly, from the celestial. Yes, I mean, uh, I've worked with a mathematician and we've got a good model for, for the book. So I think that, that you could literally bring the moon to, to, the, to, the, to the ground. And also with the heel stone. The heel stone stands just outside of Stonehenge. It's called an outlier. Uh, and it's, it's an undressed, it's not worked, it's not made into a lozenger shape like all of the stones at Stonehenge have been dressed. That's made into a lozenger shape. Originally, the heel stone was surrounded by a white chalk circle called an enclosure. So imagine round the heel stone, you have this beautiful white arena that also reflects uh, and, and symbolizes the moon itself. So again, you're looking at something so, so ruinous. So when you look at the heel stone today, 
away. It just stands in grass. But in the Neolithic era of phase one of uh, Stonehenge, five and a half thousand years ago, orthodox dating, it, it stood in a chalk <laughs> circle. It would have looked supreme and very beautiful. Hmm. I have another question. As you know, I've been interested in the energetics of these monuments for some time. Robert and I were, were there at Stonehenge in 2011, and I was able to measure with the Accutron really fascinating changes in the inertia of the tuning fork that's the heart of the Accutron watch. And so something about the energetics literally changes the basic properties of matter uh, and mass and inertia and, you know, I, I got stunning readings. Um, curiously enough, when I went 90 degrees around to, to be over by the heelstone you just were talking about, I got nothing. It was total background. So that alignment was not energetic, but 90 degrees to that alignment uh, on that little path that they confine you to. Um, I got amazing changes in the frequency of the Accutron, which had a normal beat frequency of the tuning fork going back and forth 360 times per second, it went up almost to 900. Now for the tuning fork to advance that much, to beat that much faster, the mass had to go down by a factor of three because 360 is almost one third of uh, 900. So it's about a one to third. What Something about Stonehenge, the energetics, was changing the basic mass structure of a vibrating tuning fork like I've seen at other sacred sites, but this was really at the upper end of the range that I've seen. So my next question is, is there anything different since you as a dowser can sense these energetics and don't seem to need a lot of technology to do it, is there anything different in the energetics of putting the bank on the inside of the ditch as opposed to the bank on the outside of the ditch around these stone circles? Yes, uh, when we have a look at what's below the ground uh, and look at the energetics there, for example, Stonehenge stands at the meeting point of two massive aquifers. And when in, in water divine, in esoteric water divine in law, when you have these meeting points of these two aquifers, it, it generates a high amount of electromagnetic energy. But the surface pattern that you can detect in Dowson is a concentric circle after concentric circle after concentric circle. That's how you would know that that is the meeting point of uh, two aquifers through so its surface pattern. And that surface pattern of that uh, of one of those round concentric circles is the henge bank is precisely aligned upon that so it reflects a waterscape below below the ground and it, it is a, a kind of meeting point of not just uh, underground water but near enough all of the different types of earth energies that you can have are present there that's what makes Stonehenge unique you can have a monument uh, just uh, say a stone circle that has uh, earth currents uh, lays, uh, ley lines, and, and things like that. But when you get a capital, a spiritual capital, you have layers and layers of different types of uh, energy, and Stonehenge has that. So if other stone circles can be considered kind of parish churches in, in Britain, 
would Stonehenge be kind of at the level of a cathedral? Yes, it, it, cert it certainly is, because it's got all of the criteria for to generate a lot of energy. So with, with some uh, ancient sites like Stonehenge, it's almost like it's the power station and the, the other stone circles that, that receive some of uh, its energy being transmitted along uh, lays and especially earth currents we now know. Uh, they are like the substations, so you, so you can get a really big pump out, as it were, of, of energies. And the only time those energies stop or become slightly weaker is at the moment of an eclipse, which we've discussed on this ah. program before. So when you get an eclipse, and that's why the 56 blue stones were eclipse predictor model by not only just Gerald Hawkins, but Sir Fred Hoyle, they said it was a, a, an eclipse predictor because the Earth energies go really quiet and you can detect nothing in the ground. And then just after the eclipse, it reboots up. So Stonehenge was a warning system for that. And then the reboot afterwards would have been immense coming out of Stonehenge. Well, when we got, really surprisingly, the 56 Aubrey holes in our... Uh, uh, lunar bounce uh, experiments as part of the Oumuamua sequence back last year. I mean, to me, it was kind of like, oh, of course. Because if someone was trying to talk to us about our own ancient and largely suppressed history, which goes back a lot longer than the Neolithic on this planet based on a whole bunch of evidence, um, it was kind of logical that whoever we were talking to would point us toward these megalithic ancient transmission nodes on what I, you know, kind of jokingly said the other day was really the old boy network because these ancient sites are connected by these ley lines and earth currents. And the model is that they talk to each other. So the idea that occurred to me and occurred to John and a couple other people was what if we put someone in Stonehenge with a current 22nd century technology, and we're able to somehow energize, we're somehow able to trigger the amplification process of Stonehenge that I measured. And so it would communicate through the old boy network to the other places on the ancient network. So that's when you said, me, sir, can I do and do it? <laughs> and you did an incredible job. <laughs> so talk about your first effort on February 4th to get to Stonehenge and to actually, um, uh, you know, make this all work. And I have to say, you're going to have to do it after the break because we are literally uh, at the uh, uh, bottom of the hour. I'm, Bob, no, we're at the top of the hour. I'll get my sign straight here eventually. So let's... Uh, Let's take another listen to our Ukrainian artist this morning. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
This is called the White King and Queen theme from Alice Through the Looking Glass, written in 1982 by Voldemir Bytrieskov, a Ukrainian composer. for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports, We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.